We will begin this morning with two texts. First, there was a bit of a typo in the bulletin. It was not, uh, I think it was listed as Psalm 92, and it's actually Psalm 90, verse 2. So Psalm 90, verse 2, if you would like to turn there. As you're doing so, just want to take a moment to thank, uh, of course he's not here, but I did get to thanking Jeffrey Wolford for preaching for us this past Sunday, and also to Bill and to Nathan for their help with Wednesday and Sunday night, and I do very much appreciate that. Also, as we sang today, uh, the choir special, every, I know I've said this, but it always strikes me. Uh, when I hear the song, I'd rather have Jesus, that was what was sung at my ordination. And uh, I go back to that. It takes me back when I realize I was all of 18. Uh, <laughs> the year of our Lord, 1978. And just stunning as I think about what the Lord has done through the years in that. Rejoice in that. So, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. And then in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Romans, the 11th chapter of Romans, his doxological ending of those 11 chapters. Romans 11, verse 33 is where we begin. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. We hear this now, Father, as your word, eternal, forever settled, infallible, inerrant, bringing to us life and salvation. Grant to us now in these moments that we would hear this your word. By your spirit, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I recall only one small part of the sermon. It took place over 40 years ago. I was listening to a pastor whom I count a friend, though he was several years my senior. In the sermon... He raised the question, why did God create? And he sought to answer that and included this. 
maybe God was lonely. It bothered me at the time. I wasn't exactly sure why it bothered me, but it bothered me. It seemed both shallow and all too human. Now, whether we want to think deeply about God or not, if we're believers, we're confronted with the necessity. All you have to do is wait for the child to ask you the obvious question, where did God come from? And suddenly you're placed in a position of making some attempt to define and defend the self-existence of God. Matthew Barrett, in his excellent little book, None Greater, when he addresses this question, titles the chapter, Does God Depend on You? Does God depend on you? Now, here's how he opens. What was God doing before he created the world? Perhaps he was lonely. And being lonely, he needed to fill that empty hole in his heart. So he decided to create the world. That way he could have fellowship with others. Now that the world is here, God's not so lonely anymore. Because of us, he feels fulfilled and whole. That would be lovely as an Oprah episode, by the by. Let me comfort you, Barrett doesn't believe that at all. What we address today, I titled it God's self-existence. There's another way to say it. Of course, there's always another way to say it that's more difficult. Easier to say, harder to comprehend. Theologians call this the aseity of God. The aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. It comes, who'd have thought, from Latin. Ase, from himself. Now, as I've studied this again, there is something striking about this attribute of God, which in many ways I don't think I've ever noticed, or having noticed, it has broadened and deepened. Although this is a glorious concept and a right way of thinking about God, when men attempt to write about it, they, they quickly come to the end of their tether. There's attempts, and there's been some great attempts made, but it is so large and so other from us to think about a God, the God, who has neither beginning nor origin and no end and nothing that is a limitation upon Him. I've referenced this little book by A.W. Tozer often, and will continue to, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's not a cheerful thought, he says, that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. Few of us have let our hearts gaze in wonder at the I Am. Perhaps some sincere but puzzled Christian may at this juncture 
wish to inquire about the practicality of such concepts as I'm trying to set forth here. What possible meaning can the self-existence of God have for me and others like me in a world such as this and in times such as these? Why should I care? This I reply, that because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all our problems and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable. Now, folks, I know some of you are saying, well, preacher, come on. <laughs> November. Thanksgiving's close. And after that, Christmas. And come on, why are you taking us into this deep water? It's we're coming up on such a glorious, wonderful season. And let me defend myself. My friend, what we celebrate in a few weeks in December is infiltrated, is displaying something majestic and glorious in so many ways that honestly to me there's no better time of year to be considering the nature of God than right now. The incarnation I hope shall be made more glorious in your thinking and in my thinking for what we shall see in the next few Sundays as we consider this matter, the existence, the attributes of God, or what it means to know God. The crisis we face when we consider God's self-existence is this. I can't fathom a being without origin or beginning, so it has to be impossible, or it's not worth my time. I can't fathom no beginning, no ending. I can't fathom somebody that exists in and of themselves. Thus, why should I bother to think about that. My friends, the reality is the triune God simply is. The triune God simply is. Now what do we mean when we talk about the aseity of God? What do we mean when we say that God is self-existence? R.C. Sproul helps us as he's often helped many of Just because it's impossible that a creature be self-existent does not mean it's impossible for the Creator to be self-existent. God, like us, cannot be self-created. You understand the problem there? To be self-created would mean that you had to be and not be at the same time. There was a point where you weren't and a point when you were. Self-creation is a logical contradiction. It is an impossibility. But God, unlike us, can be self-existent. Indeed, this is the very essence of the difference between the creator and the creation. 
This is what makes him the supreme being and the source of all other being. God is without beginning or ending, without origin or succession. His existence is grounded in himself alone. God possesses life in himself. He is not caused by another. He did not spring out of nothing. That's true. Now hear me. We say the universe didn't spring out of nothing. Now occasionally, I've I've read recently, there are some physicists who are trying to argue that there is the possibility of self-creation. And I know they're smart. I know that my my mind is far smaller. My capacities, capabilities, much less. This stands as a philosophical maxim. Ex nihilo nihil fit. That is, out of nothing, nothing comes. I mean, you and I can't even think about nothing. Now, I know, I'm sorry, I'm not doing marriage counseling. Let me, let me stop for a second. Wives, when your husband says he's thinking about nothing, in one sense, that's true. Men actually have a box on the shelf up here called nothing, and they pull it out. Okay? So, we're not talking about that. You and I cannot in any real way, think about nothing. What does nothing look? Well, it's nothing. What does nothing smell like? It's nothing. What does nothing feel like? No, no, it's nothing. We cannot bring ourselves to grasp nothing. And how is it that out of nothing... Something happens. you got to have something. If that's true of creation, how much truer of the deity? God didn't come from nothing. God is. And this is the definition, if you will, of all that we're saying. God's category of existence is different than our existence. It is the ultimate creator-created distinction. Now, we are time-bound. We are spatially bound. We are finite by our very nature. And so to ponder this, some of you have already checked out. I see flags of surrender waving. Hang on, we haven't really got started yet. Now that's fine for the definition, but the question is, does Scripture actually teach God's aseity? Does it teach God is self-existent? Well, let's consider a couple of texts. I'm just going to read and emphasize a couple of things. How about the 102nd Psalm? Psalm 102 Verse 25, Psalm 102, verse 25. The the psalmist says, 
to the Lord of old. You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they'll pass away. But you are the same, and your years years have no end. I think about this. Matt's call to worship. 300, did I get that right? 300 sextillion? Wait, they asked me. What? 21 zeros. 3 and 20. Good night. And all you have to do, my friend, even if you can't get outside of Springfield and look up at the sky, is there anything more calculated to make you feel small than to consider the vastness of of the universe and yet the psalmist says the Lord can change the universe as easily as you put on a different coat hmm how about Isaiah 40 Isaiah 40 at verse 28 Isaiah writing says this Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youth shall fainting be weary and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up wings with wings like eagles, they'll run and not be weary, they'll walk and not faint. Now, everybody knows that part of that text, because that's used for all sorts of settings, right? Trying to encourage people. But do you see the earlier statement, the Lord is the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Or how Jesus says in John 5, Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, folks, let me help you understand the distinction here. You are alive. Okay? Y'all get that, right? You are alive. But you don't possess life. It is something you do not control. Now, admittedly, in the darkness of our culture, we will sometimes attempt to exercise sovereignty over life by the horrid practice of taking our own lives. That happens. And it's heartrending. It's heartbreaking. But understand, my friend, we don't possess life in ourselves. God actually possesses life. That's why it's such a big deal in the Scripture for anybody to end someone's life. It is a gift of God. And it was not to be deprived except under extraordinary circumstances. But think with me of two texts. And we'll take a moment to camp here. Look at Exodus, the third chapter. 
Exodus, the third chapter, at verse 13. This is the Lord calling Moses to deliver his people. Exodus 3, verse 13. Then, the, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's a variation of the I am statement, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Israelites had lived under the dominion of Egypt for generations. They lived in a culture of pagan domination. The gods of Egypt were all around them. So with a 400-year history uh, behind them of having first lived as aliens and then as slaves, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph may have seemed to be the promises of some tribal, regional deity. Now, it's not too hard to follow when you see their behavior once he gets them out of Egypt that the paganism of Egypt had seeped into them, right? All you have to do is go to the foot of Sinai and discover the golden calf incident to realize Egypt's idolatry had leached into Israel's psyche. But what he begins with is this. Who shall I say sent me? I am. Tell them the one who exists, who is existence, who is life has sent you. The God above all so-called gods has sent you. The eternal I am has sent you. Not I was not I will be, not certainly I am becoming. I am. But it's not just there it shows up. Hmm. You did catch there was purpose in the response of reading, right? Now this is the place to nod, because there was, whether you caught it or not. Just, you don't have to look dumb, just oh yeah, mm-hmm. I'm with you now. They look at Jesus, and what an insult. To them, this is the ultimate insult, right? Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? That is as big an insult as they can come up with. You're a phony Jew, you're a Samaritan, and you're demonic. <laughs> I don't have a demon. He didn't even... Didn't even touch the Samaritan then. You know, it was the, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, you dishonor me. And as he goes along, he, he talks about his word as being vital. If anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. And they're, they're saying, are you kidding? Abraham's our father, 
and he died and the prophets died. Who are you saying you are? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, well, I am. Now, I cut that off right there, but you know what the next verse said? They picked up stones to throw at him. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus just claimed to be God walking on earth. The I am has come among you. Now I know, okay, preacher, this is, this is deep. And I, let, me, let me help you. We're going to go just a little further and why this matters. And here I thank Matthew Barrett who summarizes what this means to all of God's other attributes. God's being. He is life. He is self-existent. That means he is self-divine. That is, he is Godhood in and of himself. No one grants him Godhood. He is self-wise. That is, all wisdom, knowledge, understanding have their origin in him. God never learned anything. God never had a lack of knowledge. He is self-wise. God is self-virtuous. That is, all moral and ethical and good and right originate in Him. He is self-attesting. Truth begins in Him. Truth is not a principle that exists outside of Him. He is the source. He is self-justifying. That is, justice flows from him. He is self-empowering. No one grants or gives or augments his power. He is self-knowing. No, he doesn't depend on anyone else for knowledge. He is self-excellent. That is, there's nothing and no one more excellent than him. Barrett goes on to say it this way, for if there were another being more excellent, more glorious, more majestic than God, then he would be dependent on that being for the very excellence that characterizes who he is and what he does. Now, I know. <laughs> Y'all waiting for the third part, right? I, I kind of told you what it means, and I, I think I've shown you in the Scripture says this. Now, y'all waiting for the so what? So what difference does it make? All right, Doug, I followed you. It hadn't been easy, but I followed you more or less. What difference does this doctrine make? Does it matter? Why spend time? Well, folks, I'd say, first of all, it has a profound effect on our evangelism. What is it that we are saying to people? Now, if you wonder how I get there, come with me back to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. Acts chapter 17. Now, you remember, Paul finds himself in Athens. He was waiting for his brothers, and in verse 16, Acts 17, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Hmm. I get it. He just can't take it. It's just all this paganism, all this wickedness, all this darkness. It's more than he can stand. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? The word there, babbler, literally could have the idea of seed picker. Now, it's not exactly hayseed. It's more like a guy who goes around and gets a little of this and a little of that and tries to put something together. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And then Luke tells us because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and they wanted to know, what's this new thing you're teaching? Verse 20, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke gives us a little commentary. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. See, before you had the Internet, some things don't change, right? Need something new. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now you see what they've done. They had altars to all the deities they knew about. There's an altar here, and there's an idol there, and they've got all these altars and idols to all these gods. And then somebody said, what if we miss somebody? Easy. Let's have an altar for the unknown God. We wouldn't want to offend one that we didn't know. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, understand, Paul's not saying, oh, it's nice of you to do something like that so my God doesn't get left out. He's playing off of their ignorance. Oh, yeah, you got an unknown God. Let me clear this up for you. Now look how he speaks. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Did you hear that description? He is not served by... Well, I serve the Lord. You know, don't tell me that it doesn't matter. No, folks, it matters. It matters because he tells you what to do and he tells you how to use it. But you've got to understand, God doesn't need you. He's not needy. You understand what I'm saying? He invites us into the project. And it's not that there aren't significant things we do. They are, but they are because of him. I think I've said this before. I remember a brother one time talking about dealing with your kids. He said, when your little fellow wants or a little girl wants to come out and help you work on the car, he said, this is what you do. You hand them a tool. And you tell them you stay right there with that tool. And while you're working, every so often you say, hand me that tool. And you go in there and you rattle around with it a little bit and you turn around and hand it back to them. That way they feel like they're contributing. You're not kicking them away. They actually get to do something. And I tell you that in a sense, that's kind of how the Lord... Yeah. I know you said, yeah, preacher, you're rattling. <laughs> Hand me back the tool. Uh, we've got to keep in mind God is not needy. All right? 
since he himself gives to all mankind, get it? Life and breath and what? Everything. Now, my brothers and sisters, in a world that believes that everything came out of nothing or that everything happened by accident, this is a much different approach to understanding this world. And he made from one man hmm, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For, and then he quotes from one of their philosophers, probably Epimenides, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, from Eratus' poem, for we indeed are indeed his offspring. And then he goes on to talk that this is the God who has sent Jesus. This is the God who has sent his son, who was crucified for sinners and has been raised for the dead. My friends, do you understand that Paul doesn't say that the idea of where we come from doesn't matter? God made us. And to this God we must answer. My friend, this morning you may not be a Christian. You may never have come to saving faith in Christ. And you may think all of this is madness and you're hopeful I'm about done so you can get out of here because this is all just weird. And I will tell you, as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a messenger, this is the God to whom you must give account. This is the God who ordained that you even be. You are not an accident. God had purpose in you being here. Do not treat with contempt the one who grants you life and breath and everything. And do not reject his son, the only hope of your salvation. God's self-existence defines our creatureliness and our existence. God's self-existence becomes our anchor regarding his nature and promises. God's self-existence becomes the foundation for our continued existence. The gospel depends on a God who does not depend on you. God acts to save. God does what is necessary for our salvation. This God is not dependent. You and I are contingent and derived. He possesses life. And I just say briefly, it not only addresses our evangelism, my friends, it addresses our worship. When we wonder about our meaning, God is the author of our meaning. When we struggle with purpose, God is the author of our purpose. God, the uncreated, the source of all life, is the God we worship. This is the God who ordained our time and our place and put us here. This is the God who has rescued us and given us salvation and eternal life. This is the God whom we should worship. 
It is precisely, to quote Matthew Barrett, because God is free from creation that he's able to save lost sinners like you and me. If God were a needy God, he would need our help just as much as we need his. What good news it is then that the gospel depends on a God who does not depend on us. Behold, Christian, your God. Behold, non-Christian, your God. Are you reconciled to Him? Do you know Him? You can through His Son our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, my friend, is your only hope. In a few moments, we're going to sing in a joyful response to this. And I first want to lead us in prayer. This prayer was actually based on a prayer of Clement of Rome. This goes back to the early church, probably around the third century or so. And as I voice this, I ask that you pray with me. Father, help us set our hopes on your name, O Lord. You are the origin and source of all creation. You open the eyes of our hearts so we can know you. You alone abide highest in lofty places. You are holy, holy, holy. You lay low the insolent of, insolence of the proud, set the lowly on high, and bring down the lofty. You make rich and poor, give life and death. You alone are the benefactor of spirits and the God of all flesh. You look into the deepest places and see all our works. You help and relieve those who are in peril, and you are the Savior of those in despair. You are the creator and overseer of every spirit. You multiply the nations and have chosen out all who love you through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom you taught us, honored us, and set us apart. Oh, Father, may our praise now be fitting. the great triune God who is. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.